Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Not so long ago, before the common use of devices operated by electricity, our lives were generally much more calm. And as humans, we have a biological heritage of being curiosity-driven, reward-seeking, and harm-avoiding creatures. The conflict that has evolved between our biological heritage and the demand-driven economy in the United States is the essence of a book entitled American Mania, When More is Not Enough. Dr. Peter C. Wybro, author of American Mania, is our guest on this edition of Radio Curious. Dr. Wybro is a professor of psychiatry and biobehavioral science and director of the Semmel Institute of Neuroscience and Human Behavior at the University of California at Los Angeles. I spoke with Dr. Wybro from his home in Los Angeles, California in mid-February 2005 and asked him to discuss the conflict between our biological heritage and our demand-driven lifestyle and economy. It's actually a passion of mine. You know, I'm a migrant, and I have, I've been here probably coming up to 30 years, and I do believe that the whole culture has changed, in, especially now with the information revolution. So I believe that we are indeed beginning to push the limits of our physiological tolerance. It's... Um, it, it could be dangerous for us, and that's why I wrote the book. Can you describe where those limits are and how they are being pushed? Well, you see them both at the physiological level and also, I think, at the behavioral level. The most obvious one to everybody, I think, is the uh, rising level of obesity and the fact that now some 65% of American men are overweight 55% of women. This is a significant change in the last 20 years. It, 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 probably in the 80s, Americans were about the same size in terms of their you know, body weight as most other industrialized countries with perhaps you know, 8% obesity, 10% obesity at the most. But that has mushroomed, I think. And it's not just because of the foods we eat. It's also because that's a very big part of it. We have very high carbohydrate uh, diets were supplemented for other things. But I think that um, it's also that we eat in a different way. You know, we rush from one thing to another, tend to be rather hungry when we finally do get to the fast food and gobble it down. And suddenly, 20 minutes later, we're feeling overfed but we've lost the ability to gauge that. So physiologically, we, we have tended to deny or to ignore our uh, appetites. We don't understand them anymore, and instead we are just fast-feeding ourselves, literally. Well, you and, also mentioned that we have an ability to gauge when we are hungry, but not to gauge when we are overfed. That's right. The, the, the mechanisms that we have in the body in general are designed largely for the lower limits, and you can understand that. If we, when we were growing up on the savanna, when we were in our early phases of evolution, the most things that we faced were starvation and uh, acute emergencies. 
we didn't live with the affluence we live now. And so almost all of our physiological mechanisms are designed to prevent collapse when you have too little food or when you have, you're bleeding to death. Uh, you will faint as soon as your blood pressure drops. You'll um, faint when your blood sugar goes down. But in fact, nothing happens essentially. Uh, in the acute phase when your blood sugar goes up or when your blood pressure goes up. It's only years later that you begin to realize that this is a dangerous phenomenon. And presumably that's just an aspect of evolution because those protections were not needed to survive as much as the lower limits were needed. Absolutely right. We, we had no real experience of affluence, and that's the novelty of American life. It's not only affluence that comes from a lot of food and a lot of choice with food, but it's also an affluence in terms of information, in terms of the speed at which we can accomplish things. And it's also uh, an enticement uh, based upon our material uh, ingenuity. We have created an extraordinary pleasure palace. We, we also, coming back to you, the early part of your question, you know, how do we shift, uh, how have we shifted behaviorally? We're now in an environment where it's extremely seductive for us. We we need to uh, carefully uh, assess what it is that we really want because you can have just about anything. And that is, in fact, what is juicing up our reward pathways, which are fascinated by novelty, so that we see also not only an outbreak of obesity, but I think also an outbreak of anxiety, of competition, and of greed. You mentioned that this is a novelty of American life. In your book, you do distinguish between what is going on in American life and what is going on in other countries. Yes, I think we are ahead of the curve. You see, we're a very ingenious nation. This is a fascinating and wonderful place to live, but it's very different from many other countries, even the industrialized countries. Folks who've lived in America all their lives and were born here and haven't gone abroad, I don't think they realize that. America is distinct, and it is, I believe, tied to the fact that we're a migrant population, that we have these survival characteristics, probably larger, uh, there's some good genetic evidence for this, by the way, in, in uh, uh, greater uh, degree than does the average individual. We are optimistic, we're aggressive, we're uh, assertive, we're able to come up with novel ideas, we're just a little bit ahead of the curve, and I think that's why we're finding these problems in America before we see them in the rest of the world. Well, indeed, if that were not the case, our ancestors probably would have stayed home. Exactly, exactly. You see, I think that that's the critical difference. Um, in a sense, how we figure this out will be very valuable for the rest of mankind because we're all moving in that direction. England's just a little bit behind us. Europe is a bit behind England, etc. But all the industrialized countries, as we have moved towards this extraordinary, technically driven, information-saturated environment in which we live, everybody is moving in the same direction. So is it this self-selection that drew people to America, the reason why you call this behavior within the United States predictable? Yes, exactly. Not only that, it's predictable in the U.S., but it's also predictable in general if you understand the way in which uh, human beings work. In fact, that's the, really the point of the book. I mean, I think many books have been written about how we need to slow down. That's uh, not something new, and I don't think anybody would disagree that we live in 
somewhere between discomfort and frenzy uh, many days of the week. But what is new about the book is that it puts a platform underneath which helps us understand things. I'm a very firm believer in the fact that human intelligence will find our way through this problem, but first of all, we have to understand the problem and not just sort of say, oh dear, I'm working too hard and, and doing too many things. What we have to understand is why that's happening to us, and it is predictable given the environment we now live in. So help us understand why this is happening. Well, one of the ways you can understand it is just go back to the way we're wired up. You see, we were speaking earlier about the way in which we spend a lot of time evolving in frugal circumstance. So the brain is very carefully organized so that anything novel coming into our uh, awareness is quickly identified, and then we use our intelligence to assess it. But it's novelty that gets our attention. It's movement, different colors, noises, things like that. We are very attuned to change. And what, of course, if you think about it, we've built in our great um, dynamic palace here is we've built uh, an environment of change, rapid change. In fact, we're now addicted to rapid change. So that's one side of the equation. If we can for a minute, uh, is it fair to say that the novelty or the attunement that we have to change in our peripheral vision and so forth is part of when we were living on the savanna and had to be aware of an animal that might come eat us? Exactly. That's a hardwired attunement. Exactly. And the dopamine pathways, which are which I call the superhighways of the brain, there are several of them, but the, the dopamine pathways particularly, they're the ones that pay very precise attention to change, and they immediately get the attention of, of the larger brain, of the intelligent brain, to figure out what that change is all about. But that's where they gain our attention. Of course, you don't have to be very thoughtful to immediately see the awareness of that concept to marketing, for example. So the more one gets inundated by messages, the more you turn them off. So the more that has to be innovative in order for you to pay attention to it. And that, of course, is exactly the escalation that you see in our commercial environment. So understanding that as a given, what is it that you predict? To understand that, you have to go back to understanding what a market economy really is. If you go back to Adam Smith and the patron saint of American capitalism, he was a psychologist, really, rather than an economist. He wrote two very important books, but the first one was called The Moral Sentiments. That was a book that outlined his theory of humankind, and he realized what I've just been saying about reward. He didn't understand the neurobiology, of course. Nobody did in those days, but the, the reward part of the brain, he felt, would be best left unfettered so that it could, in fact, create for itself what it desired. And his argument was that this would be beneficial to everybody. And the beneficial uh, aspects was that uh, in community, people who were working hard and looking after themselves would do so in an honest and fair way because they would clearly be able to benefit from the social relationships that they had. Human beings have always lived in social groups. They love social groups. We, we are herd creatures, basically. So we compete with each other, but we compete in a collaborative way. So Smith's idea was, okay, you let the uh, self-interest run. You let the reward cycles, as we know them now, the reward pathways, do what they need to do. 
and that will be contained by the need that people have to be loved by other people and to collaborate with them. So there was a balance. He saw it as a balance. And unfortunately, that is what has happened to us and why it's predictable, because the balance has been lost. We no longer have mechanisms of the sort that we had in the 18th century to reinvest in small communities, because small communities are dying. So what do you see then as the path or the course of American society, and what attention should be given to protect ourselves from the problems that may ensue? Well, first, as I inferred earlier, we have to understand the problem. The problem is not that complicated if we understand this dynamic between social reinvestment and rewards for social reinvestment and individual reward. You see, at the moment, we have a society that rewards individualism, and there are very few rewards for social investment that anybody makes. You can, you can see it all over the place. Um, the executive of a large business corporation is reimbursed perhaps you know, 800 times the average worker. The average teacher is just the average worker. So in terms of reinvesting in the community and in the society that enables us to learn what we need to learn for the next generation, we've built a society that is out of balance. And so once we recognize that, I think it's not a political issue, it's not a moral issue, it's actually an issue of what human beings prefer to do. We've always preferred to be living in social groups, but we like social groups that are stable and which where the individuals are willing uh, to help each other and not to, to compete continuously without any uh, awareness of the needs of others. So once we understand that, I think there's a great humanity in the U.S., and I think we will begin to realize that it's to our collective good to go back to um, being more socially conscious. I'd like you to explain that and help us better understand how we can be more socially conscious. But first, I want to say that our guest on this edition of Radio Curious is Professor Peter C. Wybro, the author of American Mania, When More is Not Enough. Peter C. Wybro is the Judson Braun Professor of Psychiatry and Biobehavioral Science and the director of the Jane and Terry Semmel Institute of Neuroscience and Human Behavior at the University of California at Los Angeles. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Professor Wybro, would you discuss the need to be more socially conscious and the benefits in doing so? I think the secret is that we know enough about how the brain works to realize that reward is very uh, critical to our society. But at the same time, we also know now that the way in which uh, affiliative behaviors work is in fact tied to learning. You know, the way in which we enjoy each other's company is, uh, and learn from each other is very similar to the way we learn language. And uh, th there's a whole neurobiology of what's called empathy, uh, showing that the way in which we learn social behavior is essentially by mimicry in mirroring social behavior. So unless we are consciously setting up communities that enable us to 
provide the reservoir of mimicry that young people will learn, then we get a distorted generation ahead of us. It's um, uh, perhaps the best way to think of it is that if you reward individuals just for individualism uh, alone in the first years of their life, they will never learn how to pay back socially. It's the, the, we have this little phrase these days called family values, as if somehow they descended upon us from somewhere else. They don't at all. They are family values are tied to the extended family in which we live and the community in which that extended family lives. And of course, we now know that again, because of the drive and the demand that families are under, many of the parents are both out to work. They uh, don't have enough time to, to spend time with the children because they're too busy earning the paychecks. They have been seduced into having more around them than they, um, than they can afford, etc. All these things begin to fragment the uh, infrastructure. And the most critical variable, perhaps, the last point, is that, that it used to be that the communities were the economic hub at the same time. So the local industries were the thing that the community organized itself around. That's no longer the case. So we've got to be clever uh, when you ask, how do we get out of this situation? We've got to be clever in creating the atmosphere, the way in which human beings can actually engage with each other in a community network, which doesn't necessarily organize itself around an economy, because at the moment we're not going to be able to do that. If we look at the elections, the national elections in this mm-hmm. country of November of 2004, yes. it seems that the presidential administration that was placed in office has a contrary view to what you're describing. Yes, I think they do politically, you see, and that comes back again to uh, Adam Smith and a misreading of uh, what I think a market economy is all about. The the there has be, uh, we have essentially adopted market uh, forces as an ideology rather than just a mechanism for building a civil society. Wouldn't the election be a manifestation of the seduction of the demand economy and the uh, replenishment economy, which to some extent is the individualistic aspect? You, you put it very, very succinctly and extremely well. That's exactly what it is, yes. So how do we overcome that uh, in light of what we can expect in the next four years? There's uh, the obvious discussion that's going on in February of 2005 about the revision of the Social Security issue. Yes, I think that that is, again, entirely germane. You see, as a society grows away from the natural give and take of a community of individuals who know each other, where... Uh, the care and welfare of the community is distributed among its participants. As as you grow beyond that to a society as complex as ours, then you have to have in place certain infrastructure that will enable people to manage, even though they may not do very well individually. You just need essentially a safety net. And that's what the social security system is. At the moment, we're arguing that everybody should own their own set of circumstances, the ownership society. Well, that's a misreading of what Smith really talked about. He understood that we would run away to greed if there weren't social constraints. 
And so we've sort of forgotten that part of his of his uh, philosophy, and we're now just focused upon individualism as if individualism and market forces would be sufficient. They are not sufficient. We will slowly destroy our civil society unless we give the infrastructure that is necessary to have everybody feel comfortable. So are you implying then that the election propaganda uh, to which we were all exposed in the fall of 2004 was really what controlled the individual concepts over the need for a social control? Yes, it's highly seductive. I mean, if in fact you are already feeling somewhat pinched because you're you're mortgaged uh, beyond your ability to, to pay for it by having been seduced off into doing all sorts of interesting things, materially speaking, if you're already feeling pinched, then the idea that somebody's going to raise taxes is, of course, uh, an, an anathema. And so that appeal to the individual that we're not going to take any more of your money is very compelling, especially when people are already feeling as if they're working two jobs, they can't afford the rent, etc., etc., etc. Ninety percent of Americans work for somebody else. That's something we have to we have to remember. That wasn't the case when the original capitalist market concept was put in place. Everybody worked for themselves. You know, in America, when we developed uh, the concept of a egalitarian society, which is what we did 200 years ago, more, almost everybody uh, was working for themselves or working in agrarian communities. I think it's important then to describe what the dangers are if we don't arrange for a redirection. Well, I think that we're going to see more of what we have, unfortunately. That's the whole subtitle of the book, More is Not Enough. You get increasing materialism. We've essentially confused two issues here. I mean, material goods are wonderful things, and uh, I'm not knocking the merchant, nor am I knocking material goods. It's just keeping them in balance with this uh, community reinvestment, which is very necessary. On the news yesterday, there was a, a lot about Walmart and Canada with because they were closing stores because they were under the threat of unionization. People like to go to Walmart because the because the costs are lower for them individually, but the people who work there have very few fringe benefits, so therefore the community does not get the benefit of somebody who has health insurance. They have to worry about paying for them through Medi-Cal and whatever else if they if they lose, if they get sick. So it's it's a matter of standing back far enough to look at the individual versus the community and saying, if we keep these things in balance, we will be much better off. And in fact, if you look at the health statistics, this is an interesting thing, you look at the health statistics of, of, of uh, countries and communities where the distribution of wealth is narrower than it is in this country, they're much, much better than our own health statistics. Can you describe that? Yes, there are some studies, especially in, in England and in Europe, where if the spread of income among the populace is widely divergent, then you find even very simple indices like the age at which you die changes. And so I think that's even true within the states of the Union, that there are some states where there's a narrower spread of income, and those states tend to have healthier statistics. I don't have the reference off the top of my head, but it's in the back of American Mania.
Can you tell us what drew you to this study from your former area of study dealing with the effects of the thyroid gland on the brain? Well, there really isn't any connection there. I'm a brain scientist and have been all my career. Um, I did spend a lot of time, and I still do, caring for people who have manic depressive disease. And one of the interesting things when I first came to California to me was the similarity culturally between the frenzy that we're experiencing as a culture and the frenzy that individuals suffer when they have mania. I'm not saying that we're manic. I don't think we are in any way, but we have our uh, the, we don't have the disease, in other words, any, any greater uh, than any other country. But what the, the metaphor suggests is that as in mania, we have gone beyond what we were really originally intending to achieve. You know, America was initially set up with the idea that we would be the new order of the ages. It's on the back of the dollar bill, if you look in Latin, and the beacon of hope for the rest of the world. We really saw ourselves as an egalitarian society that would provide for everybody. And I think I, I felt that there was a need to take my knowledge of neuroscience and the brain, where these drifts in our society are predictable from the neurobiological standpoint, and put it out there and, and help people understand if we want to change things, this is not a moral issue, this is not a political issue, this is an issue of what is good for human beings. As one of the reviewers of the book said, you know, we can either try to change ourselves to fit the light speed culture that we've inadvertently created, or we can change the culture to fit who we really are, which is social creatures who are fascinated by novelty and reward, but we tend to get addicted very quickly to that stuff, and it's not good for us because in the long run it shortens our lives, and more importantly, it shortens and damages the relationships we have with others, so therefore it distorts the next generation of individuals who come along. Dr. Peter Wybro, author of American Mania, When More is Not Enough, thanks for joining us on Radio Curious, and before we close, can you tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately? Yes, in fact, our uh, books which I think are helpful in uh, actually telling you what you can do on an individual level of this particular problem. I've read a lot of those, but one couple that have come out, I think, that are, are interesting. One is In Praise of Slowness by Carl Onair, and the other is um, a little older, but it's called The Circle of Simplicity, which is by Cecile Andrews. Both books, I think, help in a practical way figure out what you can do as an individual. And uh, I think with American Mania uh, as a conceptual understanding, the two books are very complementary. Dr. Peter Wybro, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. Thank you so much. Dr. Peter C. Wybro is the author of American Mania, When More is Not Enough. He is also a professor of psychiatry and biobehavioral science and director of the Semmel Institute of Neuroscience and Human Behavior at the University of California at Los Angeles. The books that Dr. Wybro recommends are In Praise of Slowness by Carl Onair, that's spelled H-O-N-O-R-E, and The Circle of Simplicity by Cecile Andrews. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious can be found on our website, 
www.radiocurious.org. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.